And as you turn there, um, draw your attention to where we've been, where we'll be going. Um, this is our final, I promise, Steve, final a review on the book of Luke. Steve told me last week that he enjoyed my new preaching style where I just kept saying one more week. <laughs> this really is the final week. Um, so we spent a number of years in Luke's gospel. Um, we spent many hours studying it. We did two weeks reviewing the content of the book, its flow, and then this is our fifth week covering major themes. We looked at Jesus' meals with sinners. We looked at Jesus' view of scripture. We looked at um, Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness, the gospel going out to the nations, the exaltation of the humble, the casting down of the pride, proud. And then last week and this week, we've been looking at Luke's presentation of the threefold offices of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. And last week, we looked at prophet and priest. And this week, we look at Jesus as king, specifically as presented in Luke's gospel. And so that is the subject we'll be looking at. And I want to pause and just highlight the fact that that is, I think for us, if we're honest, a foreign concept. We sing about king. Nothing can behold our king. Um, behold our God seated on his throne. Come King Jesus. We, we talk a good game. We're a, pe- we're a people of a nation that was founded because we threw off a king. We pride ourselves in democracy. Pride ourselves in representative government. And to be sure, I think in a fallen world run by men, that's about as good as you're going to get. Um, our system of government's uh, the, the worst, except for all the others. I think that was um, Oscar Wilde said. There's probably some truth to that. But make no mistake, God identifies himself as a king. And a king, um, and even if you think of like England, those are tame versions of monarchies, restrained by constitutions, restrained by senates, restrained by man. Um, the, the kingship that God claims is an absolute sovereign kingship. He is a potentate without redress. There is no court of appeal. There is no election. We, we see examples of this even in David's own kingship. If you, you don't need to turn there, but in, in 2 Samuel, when, when David, who's been anointed king, receives news that Saul has died and the messenger claims to have killed Saul out of mercy, what does David do? On the spot, he pronounces sentence, the man is executed. There is no trial. There is no defense attorney. There is no habeas corpus. There's nothing. David is king. His word is law. This man is put to death. That's what living under a king means and entails. It means being absolutely directed by a sovereign will. The Bible assumes that you and I need a king. Jesus claims to be king. Luke presents him as king. So I'd like to look at this in three phases. The Old Testament's anticipation. Luke will present Jesus as the fulfillment of something. Then we'll look at Luke's presentation and fulfillment in Luke. Then we'll try to talk about the present significance. So if you want to follow along, that's, that's our outline. The Old Testament expectation, New Testament fulfillment, present significance, and application. And I just want you to, while we work through this, chew on these words we so readily and joyfully sing. Um, God claims, the Lord Jesus claims, we'll see, abundantly to be a king. Not a coach, 
Not a cheerleader, not an advisor, but a ruler. Let us begin. Now, of course, the, the, the reason for this, why a king is needed, is because the very fall was Adam and Eve throwing off the rule of God. God gave them one law. His, his codex of laws was simple, would have fit on one page. Do not eat from the tree in the garden. One law. And they, not trusting his goodness, they listening to the serpent, broke that law and in effect became rebels. I mean, in doing so, not recognizing God's right to rule. And they're cast out of the garden as rebels and lawbreakers. But very early in the story of the Bible, we get these notes of a coming ruler, a coming king. The part of God's solution to what has gone wrong involves a coming prophet. Part of God's solution to what has gone wrong involves a coming priest, also a coming king. And in Genesis 49, the scenario is this. Joseph has risen to power, and he has reconciled with his brothers. And, and Jacob has moved down to Egypt. And in his dying last days, functioning as a patriarch and prophet, he prophesies over his children. And so you can see in verse 3, he speaks to Reuben. In verse 5, Simeon and Levi. In verse 8, we get to Judah. Let's just look briefly at verse 9 and 10. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. And so from this, point one, we get the king would be from the tribe of Judah. Already we're looking for a Judahite. And we notice this is a already narrowing, not just kingship in general, although all of the kings of, of the southern kingdom, aside from Saul, will be from the tribe of Judah. But we're looking for a particular one. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is one of the reasons why when... Um, Saul was chosen to be the first king of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin. Warning bells should have gone off. No, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So here, Israel is not yet even a nation. It's not even that we're dealing with a national entity. Before Israel has become a nation, while it still remains just a large family group, Jacob is prophesying what a coming Judahite, a coming ruler to whom all people will obey. So that's part, that's probably the first step in the Old Testament expectation. Um, now turn to 2 Samuel 7. I'm skipping over Hannah's prayer. If I were to do a more extensive treatment, I'd go to 1 Samuel 2, where Hannah, praising God after, after Samuel is given to her in conception, Links a coming king and coming Messiah at the end of her prayer. We don't, we don't have time to look there, but it is fascinating that she puts those things together before even David does. But in 2 Samuel 7, we have what is commonly referred to as the Davidic covenant, God's covenant promise with David. Our, our God makes covenants, and he made a covenant with Abraham, and here he makes a covenant with David. And you remember David wanted to make a house for the Lord, and God says, no, but I'll build a house for you that... Play on words that works in English, also works in Hebrew, where house can be a structure and house can be a dynasty. Look at verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest. 
and from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And remember that phrase. That phrase is very important. It's going to get repeated a couple of times in later passages. One of the key characteristics of this promise covenant with David is her perpetual everlasting kingdom and that this Davidic son, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And then we know that in the first instance, this doesn't speak of Jesus. It actually speaks of Solomon. We know that from the next verse. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. So Solomon will go astray And unlike Saul, who was rejected as king, and the dynasty was lost, and finally the Lord said, I'm going to find a king who pleases me after my own heart. God promises David this covenant will not be breakable by sin. He knows David's descendants will sin, and God said, I'll discipline him. I'll I'll give him the stripes of men, but I will not remove this covenant. I will not break. It's sin-proof, which I'm sure is great comfort to David. So it's, it's death-proof, it'll, it'll go on in perpetuity, it's sin-proof, and it's eternal. A kingdom's coming. So the next step, we have the tribe of Judah. Now it's narrowed down. The king would come from David's body. Um, this, this, the concept of genetics would be formed. This is what we mean by genetics, the genetic descent from David. Um, the Lord is explicit. From his own body will come this king. So first, the tribe of Judah... Now this expectation narrowed down to um, David's line. Now turn to Psalm 2. Last week I suggested if you only were familiar with two messianic psalms, you'd hardly do better than being familiar with Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. Excuse me. And in Psalm 2, a number of Old Testament themes are joined together. In the uh, parallel structure of the psalm, the psalm's broken into four verses or strophes, each of three verses. And in each strophe, the Lord, all caps, God's covenant name, Yahweh, appears, as well as another person. In verse 2, you see the kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers, take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And anointed is simply the translation of the Hebrew Messiah, or Messiah, or when translated into Greek, becomes Christos, or Christ. So you could, if you're doing this in Greek, against the Lord and his Christ, or the Lord and his Messiah, or the Lord and his anointed, you're just saying the same thing in Greek, Hebrew, and English. But then, in the second stanza, he who sits in heaven laughs, verse 4, the Lord, there it is, holds them in derision. Then you'll speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king. So now it's the Lord and a king. First stands the Lord and his anointed, Lord and his Messiah. And then, verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Now that's the linking language with God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Today, I have begotten you. And so Psalm 2 is so huge messianically because it lets us know that the coming Messiah is the coming king, is the coming son. It's the same person. So let's keep reading. Um, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, 
and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Pay attention to that phrase. That's going to show up again as well. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So from Psalm 2 and other passages, we learn the Messiah king, now I've added Messiah slash king in, because we know that it's the same person, would rule one day a global kingdom. Psalm 2 is addressed to the rulers of all nations, and all the rulers of the nations are told they have two options, do homage, do fealty to the sun, or be dashed by a rod of iron like a potter's vessel. And so Psalm 2 makes it clear that there is coming a Davidic son, a Davidic king, whose kingdom would excel his father David's, that rather than being confined to the land of Israel, it would be global. And all the kings and all the would-be rulers of the earth would either be crushed under his feet or would do fealty and homage to him. He would be, in a manner of speaking, a king of kings. Psalm 2 This is the expectation. And of course, these were the themes that the Jews of Jesus' day were latching onto. They loved this. Who doesn't like the news that one day your nation, your country, though small, though downtrodden, will be exalted and you will have a king that every other ruler and every other politician and every other power would, would do homage to. That's exciting. The Jews loved this. They were looking for this. And that's precisely why they stumbled over a crucified Messiah, a suffering servant. So this is the Old Testament expectation. Be first from the tribe of Judah, from David's body, he would exercise a global kingdom. And there's so much more just if we were to study the Old Testament. I'm just trying to limit this to three points so that we can get through this. These are three key points. He's got to be a Davidite. He's got to come from David. He's got to have a global kingdom. He must be from the tribe of Judah. So how does Luke then present this? Turn to Luke chapter 1. Move quickly here because I'm assuming most of this is not new to you. Um, In many, many ways, at least six that I could come up with, um, Jesus is presented as, at least seven, I mean, Jesus is presented as king in Luke's gospel. The very first is the angelic announcement. We get told from the very beginning, unlike the prophet motif where Luke allows us to be in some suspense as we draw our own conclusions, right out of the gate in Luke's gospel, we're told before he's even conceived, he will be king. The angel appears... Um, to Zechariah about the ministry of his son, John, and how he will go and and make a way for the Lord. And then he appears to Mary. And look in verse um, 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. He'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob and his kingdom. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Spoiler alert, that's right there in chapter 1. Luke wants there to be no confusion. The angel announces it. So the, the angels testified to Jesus as king. Um, a similar language shows up in the announcement to the shepherds. Unto you is born in the city of David. Right, making that connection. 
Next, the narrator himself, Luke himself, goes on record understanding Jesus as king. Most clearly in chapter 3, where he gives Jesus genealogy through his mother, Mary. Now, Jesus gets his claim to the Davidic throne legally through his adopted father, Joseph. If you compare the the genealogies in, in Matthew and Luke, they're not identical. And you can go back and you can listen to that message from a couple of years ago in Luke. The point is this. Jesus needs to have both the legal claim to the throne, descended through and received through Joseph, but God's promise to David was explicit, from your own body. And Jesus has no genetic connection to Joseph, does he? He's, Joseph is his adopted father. But Jesus does come from the body of Mary. And so Luke goes on record making it clear Mary herself is the descendant of David. God's word is kept. We see that clearly in verse um, 30, where is it? 31. The son of Melia, the son of Mana, the son of Mattiah, the son of Natan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. And so Luke wants to emphasize Jesus' descent from David. And then if you turn to chapter 7, Luke slips in the type of thing you can easily notice, but Luke slips this in, verse 7.15. It's interesting to note how the author of the book refers to the main character. Um, Luke 7, 13. And when the Lord saw her, don't miss that, when the Lord saw her. And let me pause for a minute and explain that calling Jesus Lord is very close to calling him king. It means master. Again, you're dealing with a sovereign will that you are under. Lords have subjects. Masters have slaves and servants. Lord's also the name the Old Testament consistently translate God as. And so Luke has identified, just you can almost miss it going through it, where the narrator refers to Jesus as the Lord, the ruler, the master. You could translate it that way, legitimately. The angels announce it. The narrator announces it. Go back to chapter 3. The father twice testifies to Jesus as the Davidic king. First at Jesus' baptism, then on the Mount of Transfiguration. At Jesus' baptism in 3.22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. That's, of course, the key language of God's covenant with David. That's the key language picked up in Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, I'm your father. You shall be a son to me. This is my son. Same thing happens in Luke chapter 9. Last week, we focused on um, listen to him. The Father identifies Jesus' three offices in Luke 9, connecting him with the suffering servant of Isaiah, identifying him as the greater prophet like Moses. But look at the first title in Luke 9.35. And yeah, we're moving around Luke this morning. Um, You can follow along with us now, or you can follow along later. The verses are all written down in the notes. But a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. An unmistakable connection to Psalm 2, to 2 Samuel 7. This is the king from the descent of David. But not just the father, not just the angels, not just the narrator, but the crowds, the people recognized Jesus this way. Um, Turn to Luke 18. As Jesus is beginning to approach 
Jerusalem. The, the expectation gets high, and, and for the first time, a non-disciple, um, blind beggar, identified in the other Gospels as Bartimaeus. Look at, look at uh, verse 37. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. See what he did there? He's made the connection. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And starting with this blind beggar, this messianic expectation flourishes. Turn, turn a little further to uh, chapter 19 in verse 36. And as you turn there, let me read to you the prophecy of Zechariah. Because even though it's not one of your blanks, Jesus himself testified to be king. Jesus clearly testifies, understood himself to be king. This is a clear example. In Zechariah, we get this prophecy in chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble Mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, the donkey. And of course, Jesus sets this up intentionally. Jesus orchestrates exactly this. He sends his disciples to get a donkey that has never been sat upon. And in chapter 19, we read this, um, verse 34. And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These are people steeped in their scripture. They understood the significance of Jesus riding on a donkey. And at least for this brief moment, they accepted it. They celebrated. They rejoiced. The crowds are celebrating and testifying to Jesus as king. Okay? The crowds hailed Jesus as king. Now turn to chapter 23. And in deep, dark irony, the crucifixion, crucifixion itself hailed Jesus as king. This is ultimately the charge that gets him killed. Um, In verse 3, Pilate said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And even though Pilate wants to set him free, the the Jews insist, calling out for his blood. Go a little further in chapter um, chapter, uh, 23, verses 35 through 38. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And in God's sovereign plan, what these men meant for wicked mocking purposes, they speak better than they know. There is a placard over Jesus' head while he's being crucified, rightly identifying him, the king of the Jews. The crucifixion itself hailed Jesus as king. Now it's at this point where I've got to leave Luke's gospel to make two more points. So Luke, I think you've seen, has sufficiently presented Jesus as king, but, but the story doesn't end there. You see, 
The Father, point six, established Jesus as king at the resurrection slash ascension. Now, the reason I put resurrection slash ascension is I think in many respects the New Testament deals, deals with that, separated by 40 days, as a single unit. It's, it's when the sun gets lifted up. It's when the sun gets vindicated, when the sun gets glorified. And so various passages will attribute this to the resurrection or to the ascension. Let me just read a couple for you. So the notion is this. Jesus, in one sense, is born king of the Jews, right? He's the one who's born king of the Jews. But he's not really ruling anything. And the New Testament makes the connection that at the resurrection and at the ascension, Jesus is anointed or declared king. And yet even now, he's not king like he will be. It's it's similar to David, right? So when does David technically become king in the story of 1 Samuel? It's when Saul, Saul, Samuel anoints him, right? Does Jesus begin ruling at that point? No. Saul continues to ravage and rage and function as king for years. Now, a growing band of people recognize David as the Lord's anointed as his king, and they, they give allegiance to him. And so David does begin a growing sphere of rule and authority, but nothing like the rule and authority he has when Saul is struck down. That's precisely the situation Jesus is in now. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Jesus, if you want to follow the pattern, Jesus is in the position right now that David was after he'd been anointed by Saul, Saul, Samuel. God exalts the humble. He's... Doing a good job of. And so that's similar where Jesus is at. So according to um, Acts 13.33, quoting Psalm 2, connecting it to the resurrection. Because in Psalm 2, at least for Solomon, the day that Solomon becomes functionally God's son, the day that he enters into that relationship with the Lord, where I'll be to him a father, he'll be to me a son, is the day he enters his rule, his kingship. The, the picture is, is one of father like son. And so if the Davidic king is functioning properly, according to scripture, with righteous judgments, he is imitating and reflecting his father in heaven. And there is a sort of father sonship to it. And that all begins when Solomon enters his, his rule. And so listen to Acts 13. We bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So the early church is understanding that Jesus entering into his kingship in a functional sense begins at the resurrection. Um, I'll read to you Romans 1.4, where Paul makes the same point. He talks about Jesus' dual descent concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of the dead is where God declares him to be the son of God. Or Ephesians 4.8, linking it now with the ascension 
Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And in the language of Ephesians, grabbing the Psalms, is one of a king returning from conquest with a train of captives behind him. And Jesus, in ascending, ascends as a triumphant king, ascends with a train behind him, giving gifts to men. Or if you'll turn to Philippians 2. suspect a very familiar passage, but Philippians 2 makes this point abundantly clear. So Jesus, in one sense, is born king, but there's a very real sense that at the resurrection and ascension, he is glorified and exalted in a, in a way different than what has come before. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, as a result of which, which means what we're about to read has to happen after the cross, because it's the result of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is an important thing for us to remember, because we tend to be very comfortable with the humbled, emptied, servant Jesus. We're most comfortable with baby Jesus. That's the least threatening, right? But Jesus walking around, gentle, meek, and mild, man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, that Jesus were very... It's a legitimate presentation of Jesus in the Gospels. That's not what he's like now. He's not humbled now. He's not emptied now. Now he's been exalted and glorified and given the name that's above every name. And as we'll see a little later, the last time Jesus shows up in the book of Revelation, he looks a little different. And John, his beloved disciple, who in his humiliation ate the Last Supper with his head in Jesus' side, John does not run up and give him a high five. He falls down on his face as if dead. And again, we do well to remember that. Yes, we can worship and we can adore and we can rejoice in the humility of our Savior in the years of his flesh. We should also rejoice in his exaltation, in the power and authority given to him in this name that is above every name. The Father established Jesus as king at the resurrection and ascension. And finally, point seven, we sang about this this morning in the new song that is introduced. Behold, he comes, see, he comes. The king will return to deliver his subjects and destroy his enemies. Now, Jesus did speak about this in um, the, the Olivet Discourse in Luke, but I just want to look at it most clearly in two passages in 2 Thessalonians and in Revelation. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And Jesus returns for both themes. Both are present, a deliverance and a destruction. And, and, and 2 Thessalonians 1 makes that really clear, I think. I'll pick it up in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay your affliction, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So he's coming to afflict those afflicting and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. 
There's, there's both. He's coming to destroy and afflict some people, and he's coming to deliver and give relief to other people. And again, we start to get a notion that Jesus looks a little different than he does in the Gospels. When the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. This day will be a day of marveling and glory and rejoicing for those who believed. For those who did not, it will be a day of suffering and punishment and eternal destruction. He's returning to accomplish both of those. Turn to Revelation 19. Remember that phrase from Psalm 2, he will rule them with a rod of iron. Revelation 19 pictures the returning Christ and uses that language. Revelation 19, we'll start in verse 11 in just a moment. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself, which I assure you is above all names. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The heaven, the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. There's your connection to Psalm 2. Unescapable. He will tread... The winepress, the fury, the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the king will return to deliver his subjects and destroy his enemies. Okay? So there's my very, very brief New Testament presentation, Luke's presentation of Jesus as king. I want to take the few minutes we have left talking about so what. I'm guessing in some senses announcing Jesus as king is nothing new to you. I'm guessing many of you are like, oh, wow, I didn't know Jesus was king. But I wanted to show you the biblical presentation, why we believe that. But now I want to talk about the so what. Um, and I want to challenge you, point one here. Hail him as king or be destroyed. That's the logic of Psalm 2. You're given two options. God has established his king. You can rage against him. You can resist him. And you can be broken. Or you can kiss the son. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The nations of the world are arrayed against him. He shows up to do war with them. And this is where I want to challenge you. Is, is Jesus king? We're not Used to kings, we don't like being told what to do. Kings don't need to explain themselves. Kings don't need to account for themselves. Kings don't need to do a poll to check on public opinion. That's not what kings do. 
Now, Jesus is a good king, and he he tells us that he no longer just calls us slaves, but he calls us friends because slaves do not know their master's will, but he will tell us why, and we've seen his goodness, but there are many things he says and does that I don't understand. He's a king. And I I think the challenge of whether we accept the authority of God is seen not in those commands and instructions of God that we agree with. Uh, The the analogy I use is I need no authority to give you $20. Here, here's $20. What I need authority for is to say, hey, open your wallet and give me $20. No questions. Only if I have a great amount of authority can I do that. So it is no sign that you have a king in that those parts of Scripture that you agree with, that you think are beautiful, that you think are lovely, you do. It requires no authority to do that. The test of authority, the test of whether Jesus is king is seen in those parts where everything in you disagrees. I wouldn't do it that way. I don't understand why it's that way. I don't like that. That looks ugly to me. That looks scary to me. Okay, now what are you going to do? And that's when you find out if you have a king. That's when you find out if you have a ruler. The test of God's authority is seen not in those places we agree, but in those places we most strongly disagree. That's when we find out, is Jesus your king or is Jesus your life coach? Is Jesus your king or is he your therapist? Is Jesus your king or is he your cheerleader and buddy? Now, he is your friend and he is your brother. He's also king. And we see that at the eschaton, when, when, when things finally are settled, when all scores are settled and all accounts are reckoned, there are those who kiss him, do fealty to him, who rejoice in his rule, and there are those he destroys with a rod of iron. There's no third category. And so I just want to challenge you this morning, as un-American, as undemocratic, as a theocratic king is, you and I need one. And we would do well to heed the warning of Psalm 2. I'll read it to you again. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Take refuge in the son. Do homage to the son. Come to him. He still even now is hands outstretched, welcoming those rebels who lay down their arms, who come and turn, trust in him. But there will come a day where that offer of pardon is, is removed, and he will destroy his enemies. Hail him as king, or be destroyed. Second, seek his kingdom and not your own. Seek his kingdom and not your own. Now we're back in Luke Jesus taught us to pray. How was the first thing we're to pray for? Father, hallowed, reverenced, revered, be your name. Your kingdom come. This is the rub for me. I got my plans. I got my kingdom. I got the things I want to accomplish. And they're not necessarily bad things. But if we have a king, it's his administration we are to promote. It's his plans and purposes we are to carry out. Because we are under a sovereign will and we are not our own. We are bought with a price. We are possessed, as in owned by someone, another. And we are not free agents. And so how do we spend our life? If, if you have a king, seek his kingdom. Now, he's a good king, and he says, hey, if you seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to you. But every day we're faced with the test of seeking my own kingdom or seeking God's kingdom. Third, 
This is a king who demands loyalty. Have no competing loyalty. Turn to Luke 14. Luke 14. Jesus did not bait and switch in the Gospels. I love, I love that about him. Uh, I love that he is up front. He's not a used car salesman. He, he makes it clear. And, and just as our earthly rulers demand our loyalty, and we're told to give it wherever it does not conflict with God's will, our heavenly king demands our absolute loyalty and allegiance. And Jesus is clear on that in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, this is hyperbole. We're not to actually hate these other people. The illustration is that your allegiance and loyalty to King Jesus is so great that second place is so distant that the contrast is almost between love and hate. And, and Jesus is saying, look, if that's not your loyalty to me, go home. Stop kidding yourself. Stop playing games. Go home. Have no competing loyalty. And fourth, obey him faithfully. We don't become Jesus' subjects by obeying him. We become his sons, become the Lord's sons and daughters, become his brothers and sisters through faith in him, through trusting in his death on the cross, for acknowledging our sin. But part of that acknowledging our sin is recognizing, hey, while I ruled King Jeremy, I made a wreck of it. I messed it up. I need a king. I need a ruler. Because when I was driving the car, it was just crashing left, right, and center. So part of turning to Jesus, part of what repentance means, is giving. I'm letting go of the wheel. I'm going to get over to the passenger seat now. You drive. And he does, through his word, telling us what he wants his subjects to do. We don't become his subject by doing things, but his subjects become evident as they carry out his will. If you want, who are the subjects of the king? Well, we read his word and we look for those people trying to do that. And Jesus told many parables, and we will do our final song. I'll look at one of them about the importance of being faithful in his absence. And the metaphor Jesus uses, if you turn to Luke 12, is exactly that of a someone over, under an absolute will. Here it's a slave under a master. The ESV calls them servants, but they couldn't quit. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 48. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master or their Lord. You could translate that as or their king to come home from the wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants when the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service. And this is the type of king we have. We have a servant king. Recline at table, he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch from the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at the hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master, notice the relationship, master. Here's the the sovereign will over him, whose master will set over his household 
to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if the, master, but if the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces, literally vivisect him and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, he will receive a light beating. For to whomever was given much, to, to, to everyone to whom much is given of him much will be required and from him who has been entrusted much they will demand the more. Again, Jesus is really clear on this point. Be, be faithful in obeying him. Be, be about the business of being obedient. Um, and, that, and that's the challenge I just want to give you this morning. Jesus is unabashed in his demands for loyalty. And so do, do you, if somebody looked at your life, if somebody looked at my life, would they look, think, there is somebody under authority. There is somebody with a ruler. There is somebody who doesn't always do as they please. There is somebody who bends their will to the will of another. There is someone who doesn't get a vote, doesn't get a say. There is somebody who obeys their king. And, and our country, we don't like that. We don't, like, we don't require it of our children. We don't require it of our Wives, we don't require it of our citizens. And all the way top down, we celebrate our right to complain, grumble, and let our person above us know what we think. And Jesus loved none of that. None of that. He says to us, why do you call me Lord, Lord, Luke 6, and not do what I say? The implication is, I'm not your Lord if you're not trying to obey me. I'm not your king if you're not trying to act like my subject. And so I just want to challenge you. Um, we sing these words. We will sing these words. And you don't become a Christian by acting like Jesus is Lord. You, you do become a Christian by recognizing, hailing him. Yes, be my king. Be my God. Be my savior. Yes. But we evidence that we're his by the lives we live. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to sing. The song was just introduced for the first time this morning. And think through the words. Think through the very things that will happen when he comes. This song, from the perspective of the faithful, looks at that and says, Hallelujah! It's not democracy that's coming. It's a king.